Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. All right, welcome to On the Tape. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm here, as always, with Guy Adami. Danny Moses has the week off. He was with us for a conversation we had with the Super 70 sports guy. That would be Ricky Cobb. So stick around and listen to that guy. You got he got you kind of giggling a little bit that conversation with the Super Seventy Sports guy. One of your favorite Twitter follows, as I said to Ricky, as I'll say here in the top. If you follow only one Twitter account, don't follow us. Don't follow on the tape. Follow Super Seventy Sports because it is ridiculous. The genius of Ricky Cobb manifests itself dozens of times a day in his Twitter account, and I find myself literally. What do they call it when you laugh out loud? What do they say? They call it laughing out loud, LOL. Yeah, lolling. I'm lolling, lolling. out loud. And that's what I do on a daily basis. So that's going to be a great conversation. But, you know, we created a little disturbance with last week's podcast with Terry Duffy. And it reminded me of an album from the great Roger Daltrey. I think his solo album released in 1985, Under the Raging Moon. But one of the songs on that LP was after the fire and that's what we're in the midst of right now we're after the fire of the terry duffy interview because this week terry came on cnbc's fast money he also appeared on a fox news show and it's creating quite a disturbance out there in the twitterverse dan yeah no it's interesting you know i mean our listeners um they kind of know our take on a lot of this stuff you know since we started on the tape in january of 2021 it was the height of this kind of meme stock thing crypto and nfts were going crazy it looked like the the stock market was ready to party as you like to say guy and you do like to say that right Mm -hmm, a little bit Uh we've been skeptical all right i've been long this stuff i've kind of dabbled in in a lot of this stuff um but again i have not done enough work to have any conviction one way or another 
another. And I was actually trading a lot of it as I would trade any sort of macro asset, if you will. And so the fact here we are nearly two years later after just kind of the, the height of the craze here and people like Terry, you know, who's been in, the, you, you've known Terry for what, 30 years and you mm -hmm. know him as a consummate professional. He was a trader on the CME. He's risen to be the CEO of the CME group, which is the largest futures exchange in the world. And for him to kind of say the things that he did to this upstart, this kid, right, who was coming and saying, it, it felt a little bit like, buy me out, I buy you out, yeah. right? A little bit. What's that? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Godfather because it reminds me of Godfather 2. If you think about this, what's this guy's name? Ro Khanna. I think he's a Congress uh, person from the great state of California. And it reminded me of Senator Geary during the hearings with Michael Corleone because he had to excuse himself, but he also made a point of sort of um, giving kudos to the Italian people, Italian heritage. And it reminded me of somebody that might be a tad compromised in the form of Congressperson Connor because he went after Terry Duffy with, you know, venomous statements, quite frankly, and things that I think Terry should really start pushing back on. So it's incredible how life sometimes imitates art and vice versa. No, and I guess the point here and the big takeaway is Terry's criticism of the regulatory agencies, the way in which some of these elected officials that he was testifying under oath and, and giving his commentary about the way they were pushing back on him and what he was clearly saying about this proposal by FTX, right, for this clearing proposal, I guess they had, which wasn't going to be just for crypto, but it was going to be for other assets. And Terry's point was that if you use their model based on what they can see and the transparency in which that they have given about these models, that you are going to be introducing a great deal of risk to the financial system. He put it down in paper in his testimony. He said it in front of Congress. Ro Khanna, I don't know Ro Khanna from a hole in the wall here, Guy Adami, but I'll just say this. Your point is that he is a congressperson in Silicon Valley. So who are the people who are basically going to get most egg on their face? It's going to be a lot of VCs. It's going to be a lot of crypto backers here. And it seemed to be that he was kind of holding water, if you will, for that community. So again, kudos to Terry for being out front of it and, and being really honest about it. And I think for people who's, who really, you know, that clip that's caught fire on the internet is about Terry's meeting face-to-face -face with SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, in March of 2022, where he calls him a fraud. But then it was May of 2022, where he was really calling him out in front of Congress. Yeah. And I think, listen, I think Gary Gensler, he's the chairman of the SEC. I think that's the correct title. He met with this, this uh, SPF 40 guy a few months ago as well. So, you know, the only person that really thought called bullshit on the whole thing was Terry Duffy. By the way, the same Terry Duffy that called bullshit on John Corzine many years ago, and nobody wanted to listen to him then, and clearly nobody wanted to listen to him now. Maybe people should start listening to him, because I guarantee you, at some point in the not-too-distant future, somebody else will try to uh, perpetrate a bit of a fraud on the public, and they're investors, quite frankly. Yeah, well, here's the thing, Guy. You and I have been doing this for a while. This is the business we have chosen, mm -hmm. and we're going to continue to have these sorts of, you know, scammers that, who are going to be attracted to the the shiniest sort of thing where they see the most opportunity. And, you know, the saddest thing, and again, I know this is something, you know, kind of right in your wheelhouse, you know, the bag holders 
for the most part, are retail, right? We're starting to see some big financial institutions, some very sophisticated investors, whether it be Sequoia, the venerable you know VC firm, that sort of thing, who've taken big, big losses. But generally, they can afford to take losses, and their LPs can afford to take losses. It really is the retail people who've kind of you know left holding the bag, which is one of the reasons why. And Danny Moses has been so spot on about this, um, you know, since we started the podcast of really asking the hard questions and being skeptical, especially when, you know, there seems to be a bit of a sentiment bubble only going one way, I guess uh, I would say on that. No, no question about it. Danny's tried to point this stuff out. And, and, you know, people, sometimes people just don't want to hear the truth. Danny says that all the time. It's that lyric from the Simon and Garfunkel song, people hear what they want to hear and disregard the rest. And it's true. And I made this point on podcast last week, and I actually asked Sheila Bear this on Fast Money this past week. I said, listen, I understand that people are always going to look to rip people off. I totally get that. You're never going to eliminate fraud or the fraudsters that are out there. I said, but I'm curious, uh, Sheila, what do you think about this? And I mentioned the fact that a Federal Reserve that had been overly accommodated for a decade or so, adding liquidity to the system, did they make a bad situation worse? And she actually agreed with me, which I really felt, you know, I gave myself a high five on set off camera. So, you know, you talk about the... Again, this is not a conversation about the Federal Reserve, but you talk about the unintended consequences of their largesse. Well, this is just one of the many, Dan Nathan. Yeah, no, I got you. All right, let's cover um, a handful of things here before we get out of here and before we get to Ricky Cobb. And by the way, we're going to do one of our promotions here. Leave a review in the Apple Podcast Store. Take a screenshot before you submit it. Send it to Amanda Diaz, and she's going to send you, or we're going to send you, a shirt from Ricky's store, the Super 70s or Super Sports Guy uh, shirt store. So do that. Send that out. We appreciate you guys doing that. Let's talk about where we are in the markets right now, okay? We have a little bit of a holiday rally going here. A lot of people getting you teed up, whether it be on the Fast Money, on the Twitter, you know, asking you, are we going to have the Santa Claus rally? guy okay into christmas now interestingly enough it's a low volume week here we had the s p and the nasdaq up about one percent yesterday as we're recording here on wednesday right before noon the nasdaq is up another one percent i can't really come up with any reasons why um we have rates down a little bit we have crude oil um down about four percent and i think let's start with crude here guy because this is one where about a week and a half ago we had crude just over 90 bucks. Here it is, just under 80 bucks. It's been volatile this week here. Um, we're also seeing, like I said, you know, the 10 year US Treasury yield can't get out of its own way. Are these reflective of future growth expectations, which would really be contrary to the fact of seeing the NASDAQ and the S&P rallying a couple percent here? Just so you know, the S&P is down only about 15% on the year right now. You know, given everything that we know about corporate earnings and expected global growth, it just seems to be a bit of a divergence with rates and crude and with what stocks are doing this week. The call you've made in crude is standing up without question. And you made that months ago when crude probably had a, a three-digit handle. And here we are, obviously, you know, continuing to trade lower, getting to levels that I didn't think we'd reach, number one. Carter Worth has talked about this as well. In terms of yields, this is something that you've talked about. You have a position on that's basically illustrating exactly what's going on. And Carter's talked about this. And we've talked about the potential for 10-year yields to trade down to 3.5%. One of the things that Carter also says is he could see a scenario where yields go down 
commodities, specifically crude oil goes down, the dollar goes down and equities go down. But in the short term, people would misinterpret this as being bullish for equities. And I think that's what the period win right now, that short term period where pe people are looking at lower rates and saying this has to be bullish because, I don't know, maybe it means the Fed is backtracking or pivoting or pausing, whatever it is. I think people right now are buying first and asking questions later. I think it's going to be somewhat misguided because to me, it speaks to exactly what you just said, a slowdown in growth. And that TLT now north of 102, probably headed to 110 to 112 or so, which would, again, uh, be commensurate with a 3.5% yield in the 10-year. The problem, of course, is the two-year remains sticky and two's tens continues to widen out. I think we reached almost 77 basis points or so. And it looks as though we want to get to a negative 1% inversion, which, again, I don't think speaks well to the broader economy or in the, or in the, in the short term speaks well to what happens in the market. So we'll see. But all these things are lining up in many ways the way you've outlined. And, and we'll see. The one sort of fly in the ointment, though, is energy stocks continue to hold in there. As I'm sitting here right now, the OIH, which traded down to, I think, 275 at one point this week, rallied back to 309, is still either side of 300. The XLE holds above 90. So the energy stocks are telling one story. The underlying commodity is telling a completely different one. Yeah, and, and that might just be a function of flows, right? When you think about just kind of the relative underperformance of mega cap tech of late, and so money is looking for, you know, other places to be, and especially when you consider the fact that there's two very different things going on, right? Large cap tech, the five largest names, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Tesla, all of them just guided down for the current quarter that we are in. And I think you and I would agree that that's not likely to be a one quarter phenomenon. And we still have numbers going up in the energy space, right? And so we've been looking at some of the work that FactSet has been doing about energy's contribution to S&P 500 earnings. And it's been a huge driver in 2022. But they're also expecting them to actually start to go negative, right, from the estimate revisions up word at some point in Q2, Q3 of 2023. And I think, you know, if we don't have some of these other areas that have seen decelerations or declines in 2022 pick up some steam, we are going to have negative earnings growth in 2023. And I think that's really important. Now, the other thing I'll just say about the here and now guy with the stock market, you know, rallying off the lows from mid-October, which again, you called, you thought we'd see 4,000, maybe 4,100 on an overshoot here. If you look at that chart of the S&P 500, you see that very well-defined downtrend from the start of this year when the S&P made a new all-time high. You see that declining 200-day moving average. Again, that comes in just below 4,100. Maybe we get there, maybe we go through. But here's the one thing, I'll just take you back to the last time that the Fed was raising interest rates, okay, and it was Q4 of 2018. And what happened? The stock market went down 20% in a straight line over two months here. And one of the major impetuses for that was that with coupled with the Fed raising interest rates, we also had a global growth scare. And again, so what are we dealing with? We're still dealing with, you know, 
COVID lockdowns in China. We're still dealing with supply chains disrupted from that and also the shooting war in Europe, right? And so I just kind of look at, again, just putting a bow on this whole conversation here, the fact that crude is nearing 2022 lows, okay? The fact that we have yields in the 10-year not getting out of their own way and really look like they're going to be three and a half and possibly on their way to 3%, maybe by the end of the year, that's a nasty cocktail for the stock market, in my opinion, especially you know when we just have it levitating here on a low volume week. So to me, I really feel like the higher we go into December, when we're going to get the November jobs report in the first week, and then we're going to have all eyes focused on that CPI report and then the Fed meeting, you know, I think it's December 13 or 14 here. Could we rally into that? Sure. But the slightest hint of hot data and the stock market's going to get creamed. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, I think so many people are taking their cues from a better than expected in terms of better when I say softer than expected CPI, softer than expected PPI. They're taking some of their cues from, again, a housing market that's deteriorating, commodities markets that are selling off. And they're making the connection that, you know, the Fed's job is working and they, they don't have to be as aggressive and that should be supportive of stocks. The problem, of course, is we continue to see layoffs. We continue to see, in my opinion, weaker than expected operating margins, weaker than expected revenue and EPS growth. And again, what are you paying for that in this environment, in a rising interest rate environment with an environment where the yield curve, again, is negative 75 basis points? We haven't seen that in 41 years. Go back and look what the economy was like back then. So if you're getting bullish hyped up in the equity market right now, I think it's a wrong time. On top of which, remember, when the VIX is traded up to 34, we've pointed out a number of times this year, that's been your signal to buy stocks. And that's typically been a capitulatory short-term bottom. Conversely, when the VIX trades the levels that we're seeing now, a 21 handle, that's basically been your Q2 sell stocks. And here we are now. And I think that pattern is going to continue. So again, at this point in the equity market, I think it's buyer beware. A month or so ago, it felt right to be long stocks. Now, not so much. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And just again, to put some context here, last year, the S&P was up nearly 27%. That's without dividends. 2020 was up 16%. 2019 was up 29%. And again, going back to 2018, when we had that dramatic drop at the end of the year, the index only closed down, you know, six and a quarter percent or so. And so when you think about down 16 or 15% on the year right now, doesn't really encapsulate all of that exuberance that we saw in the stock market in the back half of 2020 and all of 2021. So to me, I feel like, you know, again, I'll just say it, the higher we go, the harder we fall. And that was clearly the case in the end of last year. And Danny's mentioned this on a couple of occasions, that that kind of rally that we saw in November and December in the S&P. And we know that the NASDAQ started topping out a lot of speculative sort of equities, smaller caps, uh, crypto, SPACs, all that sort of stuff started topping out as soon as the Fed indicated that they were going to battle inflation by raising interest rates. All right, guys, are there any things that kind of stick out to you? Any single names, any sectors here? You know, we had a lot of retail earnings this week. For the most part, the stock reactions were pretty good. Target was very disappointing. That was after Walmart's better than expected results. But we saw, you know, things like, you know, Dick's and Best Buy and some of the retailers, some of the department stores act pretty decently. Is that just a scenario of 
of, you know, low expectations, really negative sentiment, and just kind of just stock market reaction, as you like to say, playing stock market, because the backdrop, you know, there was a really great article in the Wall Street Journal, and maybe Amanda will throw that in the, uh, in the show notes, really talking about a consumer that's becoming increasingly strained, savings rate going down, consumer credit, which you mentioned a lot, is going up dramatically here. Thoughts on the U.S. consumer, and then I guess just kind of this reaction to some of these retail earnings as we head into Black Friday. Yeah, well, it's interesting because now we're north of a trillion dollars U.S. credit card debt. We're approaching $5 trillion in overall consumer debt here in the United States, and that's made up of auto, obviously mortgages, credit cards, student loans. I mean, you know, that is a significant number, and that's happening under, again, a rising interest rate environment. You have to service that debt. What I've said for years and what I believe as long as people have jobs, as long as they feel good about things, and one of the main things they look to is the stock market, which to your earlier point has sold off, but not in a catastrophic way, people will spend money. I mean, that's just the way it's always been. It doesn't mean they should be spending money, but they will spend money. As a matter of fact, on Fast Money this week, Bono and Eisen spoke to exactly that point. Never underestimate the U.S. consumers want to spend it. That doesn't mean they should be. But if you look at some of these retailers, and Nordstrom's is a great example. We mentioned that on Fast Money as well. The stock has rallied over the last couple of weeks. People getting hyped up into earnings, only now to fall pretty significantly post-earnings. And if you look at this stock, this is now in an almost eight-year downtrend, a series of lower lows and lower highs since I think it topped out north of 80 bucks in the spring or so of 2015. So the, the point here is, You'll get rallies in these names and you'll get meaningful rallies in these names, but their underlying businesses continue to be challenged. And I think that's what we're facing now. There are some good ones out there. And when we talk about Dollar Gen, for example, which is lower this week, but basically just a hair off its all-time high, they seem to be doing everything right. The target problems now, you have to think, are somewhat target-specific. And that's just a management issue. I mean, they've done a really poor job with their inventories, managing inventories, and their product mix. And I think in this environment, a name like Target finds himself smack in the middle, and you don't want to be in the middle in this environment. The high end's doing very well, the low end to a certain extent as well, doing well as well, but that middle bucket, not so much, Dan. Yeah, no, I got you. Um, all right, here's one that just sticks out to me. Um, it's up nearly 7% today, and this is Deer. And in, this yeah. is a stock that's up 30% now on the year guy. It's up 56% um, from its lows made just a few months ago here. And, you know, to me, this is one of the ones that I think if you are um, an investor and you're trying to kind of look at single names to kind of give a sense of kind of what the broad market might be in store for on the other side of all of this kind of geopolitical stuff, that we've been dealing with the other side of the pandemic on the other side of the Fed's rate hiking cycle, you look at a stock like this and you say, is this telling the story here, right? So the stock made a new brief intraday all-time high today. Again, it was trading below $300. This was in July, and now here it is at $445. What do you think an industrial like Deer is saying about the broad market as we head into year end? Because listen, while you and I remain bearish on the economy. I think you and I both agree that all of this Fed rate hikes are going to take some time to work themselves into the economy here. But the stock market at some point is going to discount. Maybe it's just a very shallow recession that we see in 2023 on the backside of this stuff. What is a stock like Deer telling you? 
Well, I mean, deer is deer specific, though. I mean, they're just operating really well. It's still relatively cheap on valuation. They're basically their business mix, their product mix is exactly right. And this quarter spoke to that. But your point about briefly touching an all time high, yeah, it did. But this is an interesting one because go back to April of this year, before that cratering in July, this stock was trading about 445. So, just be aware that there's a real potential for deer to put in a short-term bit of a double top here. So you need a meaningful close above 450, I would think, over the next week or so for this to take the next level up. Otherwise, you're looking at a double top, the same type of double top we've seen, Dan, in the XLE and to a certain extent, the OIH as well. Yeah. All right. Last one here, guy. Let's look at the banks and in, in the XLF, the ETF that tracks them. We know that Berkshire Hathaway is the largest holding, so it's kind of a weird one. Danny's brought that up on many occasions. But I mean, it is pretty astounding when you look at the largest bank component of that ETF here. You see JP Morgan right before the market turned, right around when Q3 earnings started, okay, it was trading about a hundred bucks. Well, here it is, okay, it's up. Oh, 33, 34% or so. If you look at the XLF, okay, this thing looks like it's about at this technical resistance level where it's been on a couple times over the last six months or so, and it really wants to break out. We have not talked about the banks a whole heck of a lot here. I know that, you know, when interest rates started going higher, this kind of notion that, you know, net interest margins going up was going to be good for these guys, but the slower basically pace of the economy, exposure to Europe, exposure to China, all that stuff was kind of weighing on them. So to me, for the first half of this year, the relative underperformance in the banks was a tell about the broad market. What is the relative outperformance over the last month saying about, you know, again, where we might close the stock market on the year and where we might be going into 2023? Yeah, I mean, for me, the banks, I think it comes down to the headwinds that are obvious to a lot of people are being sort of dismissed in favor of valuation, which I think people can wrap their head around in an environment where people are looking for names that make sense on valuation. They're fleeing from these high value, high growth names to more stable things. And I think to a certain extent, that's what we're seeing in the banks. I will tell you that as we sit here, Goldman Sachs is within 8 or 8% or so of its, not 52-week high, they're all-time high. And this stock has had a meaningful rally from 275. This is an environment that Goldman Sachs actually does really well in. And I think they're being rewarded for their fixed income currency and commodity group for the first time in a long time. Now, how long that lasts remains to be seen. But think about the volatility we've seen not only in the bond market, but in currency markets and commodity markets as well. And that's something that they obviously excel in. So Goldman, to me, has been the one that's really shown relative strength compared to a JP Morgan, compared to a Morgan Stanley. Names that historically, well, historically over the last couple of years, people have sort of flocked to because of their stability. Now people are looking Goldman Sachs for their trading expertise. Matter of fact, and you were part of that trading I expertise was. back in the day. All right, listen, Guy Adami, that was fun. We kind of talked markets. We talked about that phenomenal um, interview that we had with Terry Duffy, and he was phenomenal. You and I were just fine here. So check that out if you haven't seen that or listened to that yet. And we're also, you know, kind of we're thankful here. It's the day before Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for you and Danny and our whole team with, uh, you know, Amanda and Jacob and Steven and Nick, who've been helping us all year with Risk Reversal Media and all the properties that we have here. So thanks to them. And obviously, thanks to the listeners, Guy. Thanks to the listeners, obviously. They put us, uh, I, th I think, as of this taping, 
We've reached the top 20 in terms of business podcasts, which is pretty remarkable in a very short period of time. And we obviously couldn't do that without our listeners. So thank you very much. Thanks for all the comments. Continue to, what do they call it when you put something on the on the, the recommendations? Yeah. Yeah, leave a review. Leave a reviews. review on the podcast. Recommendations. Smash, smash that subscribe button here. And listen, here's the one thing. You got to stick around. You got to listen to this interview that we had with Ricky Cobb, the super 70s sports guy, because Guy Adami was downright giddy. You know, they say never meet your heroes, but you know what? You met one of your comedic heroes here, and I think uh, you're not disappointed. Not at all. He was great. And you know, this is another week in the NFL, the week where they play for pay. Danny Moses is not here, but Danny texted me his picks. So if you'll indulge me a second, if you want to play the role of Guy Adami, I'll play the role of Danny Moses, Dan. Okay. Guy Adami, what do you got this week? Well, this is me being Danny Moses. Oh, right. Hello, Dan. <laughs> I know you I know you guys make fun of me because I'm not having nearly the year I had last year. I'm right now 15, 12, and 1 which is still good. You can still make money with that. I just want to point that out. But this week, I like the San Francisco 49ers laying nine and a half at home over the New Orleans Saints. I think Jimmy Garoppolo is showing that he might be one of the top 10 quarterbacks in the league. Their defense is stout. Love the Niners. And I'm going to take the Patriots at Minnesota and buy the half a point to make it Pats plus three. The line is two and a half, but I want to take that half point and make it plus three. That makes it minus 125 on the money line. Those are my picks this week, Guy. All right, Demo. That was great. We're rooting for you, buddy, because as Guy would say, you were a very pedestrian. Whatever your record is this year in the league where they pay for play. All right, listen, thanks a lot for being with us. This is going to be an early drop on Thanksgiving. We hope you all have a healthy and happy one, and we'll see you all next week. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. So I've been on Twitter since 2009 or thereabouts. I currently follow, I think, a little over 1,000 accounts. But if somebody said to me, gee, Swizz, you can only follow one account. It's not Donald Trump. It's not Justin Bieber. It's not Katy Perry or any of those people. 
I am telling you without equivocation, it's Super 70 Sports. I don't know where you come up with 90% of this shit, but I find myself laughing out loud to the point where my family comes in the room and said, what are you laughing? Ricky Cobb, it is an absolute honor to have you with us on the tape. Well, thank you guys. It's my pleasure to be here. You know, I figure any podcast that has the wisdom to bring me on as a guest is, is a great podcast. I, I could not agree more. And it's fascinating. I, I happen to think, and I fashion myself, I try to think I'm, I'm funny at times, and I happen to think the smartest people in the world tend to be people with great senses of humor, but yours is off the charts. The stuff you come up with is legendary. So my first question to you is, what was your inspiration for this? Other than the obvious growing up around the same time that I did, how did you come up with the idea for this Twitter account? Well, I'm a college professor by day, at least for a little while longer. And uh, I was on Christmas break, maybe about eight, nine years ago. I think that I was looking for a creative outlet, something that I could do to amuse myself. I've always had a love of comedy. Obviously, I've got a love of sports and in the whole era that I tweet about. But at the time that I created it, it was really just something very personal for me. I was new to Twitter at that point. I had a personal account that to this day, I think, is got maybe 100 followers, if that. I wasn't really doing anything with it. And uh, I, I read a book called Big Hair and Plastic Grass by Dan Epstein. And Dan had a Facebook page that he was using to promote his book. It was about baseball in the 1970s. And pop culture stuff mixed in there a little bit. And I thought... This is a lot of fun. I was I was checking his Facebook page every day. He was posting birthday shout outs to Bill Madlock and Jose Cardinal. And I, I found myself kind of enjoying the fact that he was taking these figures from my childhood and making them relevant uh, in, in my present in a way. And so I thought, what if I took the seed of that idea and just expanded it into football and basketball and every other sport. And so it was really just something that I was doing for fun. And I am the most shocked guy in the world to be here with you these years later, pushing towards 700,000 followers. It's ridiculous. So Ricky, Dan wants to get in here, but you mentioned Bill Madlock. So I'll say this, this is why I know where there's some sort of kismet between us or because I remember that Bill Madlock and John Matlack won the MVP of an All-Star game in like 1975. I thought it was ironic that they both won. Anyway, Dan, over to you. Well, Ricky, is there something about baseball in the 70s and the early 80s that's just funny? Uh, guys saying you're brilliant. I think you're obviously very witty. I'm, I'm sure you're a smart guy, too. But isn't there, like, you got a lot of good material. Because like I'm looking at just a tweet from today with Steve Carlton, okay? Like, you know, he was an Indian back then. I think I see Dick Buckus, Moonlight Graham, and a goddamn Wolfman in the stands. Like, where do you find the source material for this stuff? Do you just have all your tops cards and you're just kind of scrolling through them? Well, in, in that case, yes. Sometimes there's things that are there, but you just got to look for them. A lot of the best material hides right under your nose, I've found. And so sometimes it's just being open to looking at things as mundane is a 1987 tops Steve Carlton and looking in the background and kind of hitting gold. 
Uh, it doesn't happen that often, but yeah, baseball cards have been a good source of material for me. Um, really, where the material comes from, I, it, the, the shortest answer is, is I just roll up my sleeves and I go looking. And I think sometimes people think that the material, somehow I have a secret portal to uh, these sources of awesome material, but it's really just a matter of punching a lot of gibberish into Google and checking Pinterest and looking around the internet, wherever you can find it, it's fishing. Uh, and obviously I've been doing it for a long time now, so it gets harder and harder to find things that I've never seen. I get a charge when I find something that I haven't seen because I know after all the expeditions I've been on over the course of the last seven, eight years, if I haven't seen it, there's probably a really good chance that my audience hasn't seen it. But the one thing I will say for anybody that's listening to this, if you follow Super 70s, if you're a fan of the account, even if you're just learning about the account today and hopefully you'll check it out and you'll like it, send me material. My uh, email address is in my bio on Twitter. And if people want to team me up with great shit, I'm all about it. All right. Well, Guy Adami, you can see in his basement, he's got, he's got closets uh, full of that great shit. All right. Here's one question, though. What elevates a tweet to having the word motherfucker in it? Because I, <laughs> it seems like some of your best tweets have that expression in it. Sometimes I think it's just my mood. Uh, peop that's the biggest... Well, that's one of the criticisms. I guess the two biggest criticisms I get are that's not the 70s. And the other one is, is you cuss too goddamn much, although they don't say it that way, right? I get emails. I get helpful suggestions from concerned citizens that uh, the, the profanity is, is too much for them. But I think it's a little overrated. I've, I've done a little uh, independent research into my own body of work and I think that I sprinkle profanity into only maybe 30% of my tweets, but it's very organic. I think sometimes you can probably tell what kind of a mood I'm in just by how much I'm cussing that day, because there's some days I'll go through my tweets and I'll think, well, that today wasn't very motherfuckery. I don't know. I'm, I'm slipping. So I, I have to remind myself the next day to put my game face on again. You know, it's interesting, Ricky, people say to me that, I'll make a comment on Fast Money and they'll say there are about five people that understand that reference. And personally, I don't give a shit. Like, I've always felt like if, I, if I'm talking to five people, that's great. I've never been one to want to appeal to the masses. I don't find that particularly interesting. But my sense is David Letterman had profound influence on you because he's another one that just didn't give a shit. And he would try things not necessarily to appeal to everybody but to appeal to a very specific audience and sometimes say things that only a handful of people might understand. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I, I've always been struck by something that I heard Dave Chappelle say probably close to 20 years ago when Chappelle's show really took off on uh, the, the comedy channel and it was an unexpected success. And he said that he felt the reason that the show ultimately became as popular as it, as it was is that he wasn't aiming for mainstream appeal. He was trying to make a show that he thought was funny, that his close friends would think was funny. And it was really very personal in that way. And I think it has to start there. And I've been very, very lucky guy in that 
my comedic sensibility, my voice, my perspective, people have just taken to it. So I didn't have to create a persona that wasn't me in order to try to become popular. And I think that that's a large part of the reason that it's been successful because it would be exhausting to have to get up every day and pretend to be somebody that you're not. Yes, the, the voice of the feed is me clicked up two or three notches on the dial. I'm not necessarily going to be motherfucking my way through every day of my life quite like that. But if my personality is a seven or an eight, all Super 70 Sports is, is just me turned over to 10 with the enthusiasm up. But it's still me. And so I think that's very, very important. And I, I just don't think that anything is going to land generally as well from a creative perspective if you're creating it to try to appeal to as many people as possible because when you try to appeal to as many people as possible you end up with the kind of shit that's in target and walmart right there's like not anything wrong with that but if you're really trying to be great and i and i put too much time into this to not try to be great and you work in the shadow of what you've previously done. And so I've got a pretty good body of work out there now. I think you and the people who follow me have a certain level of content that they're looking for. And I don't want people to ever think, oh, well, geez, you know, Ricky Slippin, the Super 70 sports guy, ah, he's, he doesn't have it anymore, right? So the, the more followers I get, the harder I want to work. But I, I definitely think that it, it's very important for anything that's legitimately going to be great. I think it has to be original and authentic to itself. And I, I've been really lucky that I haven't had to fake it in order to appeal to people. So, so Ricky, what are, what are some of the other side hustles from other professors in your sociology department? Because <laughs> it, it, it might be a really eclectic group. Yeah, I, I don't know that there's a lot of side <laughs> hustling going on. I mean, yeah. I know a guy who's an accountant uh, and stuff like that. I don't think anybody is side hustler yeah. probably uh quite like i am and the, and the reaction to it is is interesting too sometimes i don't think my college is a huge fan of it for a long time people would ask me like well you know how, how do the people at your college feel about it and i would always say well I, I haven't really heard anything to the extent that anybody says anything the word of mouth is pretty positive but um i don't think that's necessarily the case anymore and uh, it's one of those things where I, I, I'm at a point now where I, I kind of don't have any fucks left to give because I'm successful enough with this that I don't need the, the gig anymore. And I'm probably going to leave next year uh, of my own volition in order to fo focus on some of the opportunities that are coming about with Super 70s. I, I don't think there's a ton of side hustling that goes on in academics. It, for, for most teachers... I think you uh, you put in your 30 years or whatever and you get the you get the watch and the retirement package and and, and you move on. I've, I've I'm having a very, very interesting midlife detour and it's uh, it's been a pretty incredible adventure. Well, talk to us a little bit about the demographic. I mean, obviously, you know, you're looking at Dan, uh, Danny, Guy, and myself. We kind of all look alike. We're kind of like, you know, 50-something-year-old guys. So, so the content and the wit 
we really identify. How do you think, how does it translate to some of these younger people where, you know, they are digitally native, right? They started with social media. A lot of your students, you know, literally, you know, came into their teens with, with social media accounts and iPhones and, and, and the like here. Does the content resonate with them despite the fact that they might not be aware of some of, these were memes back in the 70s or 80s, but they're just not, they're not programmed that way. Yeah, I, I think obviously the sweet spot is guys of a certain age, right? Um, I think millennials, I think there are a lot of millennials that connect with the account. And I'm, I'm gratified when, when younger people like it. I think as, as we tape this, I believe Travis Kelsey scored three touchdowns last night for the Kansas City Chiefs. Travis Kelsey follows the account. And there are a lot of younger uh, folks who do active uh, NFL players, major league baseball players and so forth, college, college kids. And I, I think funny's funny. Certainly there are some things that I tweet that if you don't have the context, uh, maybe it's not going to be funny or maybe it's going to be a little bit less funny. I, I try to tweet things that are funny as often as I can. I try to tweet things that are just funny at face value, but if you understand the era, if you understand the reference, maybe it has a another layer of funny to it. Uh, but it, it's one of those things where I, I, it's very satisfying to me. Anytime I have somebody reach out to me who who's in their twenties or you know even in their thirties, and they tell me how much they enjoy it. Somebody not too long ago who was, I think, a college-age kid said, this account makes me wish that I grew up in the 70s. And I thought, that's, that's the sweet spot that I'm trying to hit. For, for us, uh, we look back on it, and it's a nostalgia ride. It's a juxtaposition of what culture was like then compared to what culture is like now. But for the younger generation, there's that different perspective of, as you noted, being exposed to this stuff for the first time, things that didn't go viral, things that have faded into the ether, uh, uh, so to speak. And I'm pulling that stuff back out and saying, hey, you young kids, check this shit out. And so I think there's that element of it, too, that gives it more legs than maybe some people might realize. So you've obviously get to meet a lot of your heroes, I guess you call them, from time to time now, I'd imagine, with what you've been doing. And I notice certain people pop back up, like an Andre Dawson, who was just an absolute badass. So I don't know if it's the Expos that you loved as a kid or what it was. Talk to me about who you've been able to meet that by doing this, you never probably would have been able to and how meaningful that was for you. Oh, I mean, gosh, uh, so many. I just had Rod Carew on my podcast a few episodes ago and got to interview him for about 30 or 40 minutes. And, and that was fantastic. Uh, I, some of the other guests I had on the, on my old podcast, we have one now called the super 70 sports show. Check that out on your favorite uh, streaming service, but I left the archive up of the, of the old podcast as well, which is out there. People can find, but I had guests on that one, like Rob Lowe, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Barry Williams from the Brady bunch was one of my favorites. A surreal experience to be able to pick Greg Brady's brain with any silly goddamn question that you had uh, about that show. But the 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 short answer is, is there have been so many people whose acquaintances I've made, some friendships that I've that I've carved out through this from 
not only athletes from when I was a kid, Dale Murphy and Dave Parker have been on the podcast, Dan Issel, uh, one of my old favorite uh, NBA players, and then just the people that I've met through it, people who have reached out to me, DM'd me and told me how much they enjoy what I do. And it's forged uh, relationships in some cases and in friendships. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's kind of like Candyland, man. I, I, I tell you, I'm convinced that what's going to happen is I'm going to wake up like a year from now. And I, I've probably been in some sort of COVID coma or something because some some days as much hard work as it is and there is a hell of a lot of hard work that goes into it um it's a labor of love and i really feel like i caught lightning in a bottle and i got to be one of the luckiest guys in the world have you ever heard from anyone that you might have offended even if it wasn't you know intentional in a tweet that saw it and said hey that's not it or you you had to take on something or like you don't know what you're talking about or anything like that happen i mean i have offended people there are certain tweets that i've that I've made where people get upset, but it's usually not the subject of the tweet itself. I made a tweet about uh, Joe Paterno uh, a few years ago, and it was Joe Paterno. He was broadcasting with Keith Jackson as the color analyst. They were both wearing the yellow or the gold ABC sports blazer. And I said something to the effect of Joe Paterno's announcing career came to an end when on every play he insisted that he, saw nothing, heard nothing, and knew nothing. <laughs> and I didn't hear anything from the Paterno family, but the uh, the Penn State loyalist let me have it, and my follower count dropped down. I've learned not to even toy around with politics, um, things things like that. The, I, the only person I can think of who ever said anything to me, and it was – and she still uh, – follows me. I think she just retweeted me the other day. So there's uh there's no animosity there, but I had tweeted a photo of Wayne Gretzky from the <laughs> early eighties. And I referred to him as Martina Navratilova. And uh, I said, you know, you can't deny Martina Navratilova is one of the greatest of all time. And it was a photo of Wayne Gretzky. And he tweeted back something like, are you guys crazy or stupid? Uh, but I, I think Martina came around on it and kind of got what I was doing. So I don't even really think she was that mad, but, uh, I, I think the people who follow the feed understand that it's very tongue in cheek. It's done with a wink and a nod. I'm going to poke fun at everybody. I always say, Hey, look, I'm a smart ass, but I'm an equal opportunity offender with the with the smart assery right i'm gonna i'm gonna poke fun at your favorites sometimes i'm gonna poke fun at my own favorites i'll poke fun at myself and then i'm also gonna poke fun at at your enemies and your rivals too you know so if you stick around long enough everybody's gonna get skewered but unless it's oj simpson or or somebody who richly deserves it it's it's normally the kind of thing where you bust the balls of the people you like Right. And so it's, it, you know, I make fun of the seventies in general, right. I, I take shots at the seventies and point out a lot of the absurdities and, and things that ne haven't necessarily aged well, but I'd like to think that most of what I do comes with a, a good heart and a, and a sense of affection. The Eurythmics are a, a decent band. They're not the who, then it's not Led Zeppelin. It's not the, the Eurythmics, right? 
Now, I don't know why this resonated with me, and there's going to be a question on the back end of this, but you tweeted a picture of Kurt Warner <laughs> and his wife, and his wife is out there, right? And the tweet is, Kurt Warner and his wife made history in 1999 when he passed for 41 touchdowns while she explained what sweet dreams are made of and felt she wasn't in a position to disagree. Now, a lot of people read that and be like, what? The genius of that is it's Annie Lennox. She's a she's a spitting image of Annie Lennox. It's obviously a lyric from one of their songs. But how do you like I know Dan asked you, but you must write this and laugh your balls off. Are there certain tweets that you put out that you find yourself just rolling on the floor? Because for me, that's one of them. I do sometimes. It's more of a it's more of a giggle kind of thing if i make myself like you know i got a weird sense of humor man so it's like sometimes the ones that make me laugh the most i think a lot of comics are like this comics try to crack up other comics and sometimes the things that comics crack each other up with isn't necessarily the same material that plays the best on the stage and i've always seen twitter as a sort of a form of virtual stand-up because you're getting the feedback instantly and I always tell people, I know within two, three minutes how well a tweet is going to do. That's a large enough sample size for me at this point, having tweeted over 50,000 times. I'll know within three, four, five minutes tops how well a tweet is going to perform. I know if it's a homer in the upper deck or if it's, you know, people tell me I never miss. And I always say with all humility, I, I miss every day, but I think that I miss because I'm still willing to take chances. If I wanted to play it completely safe, my batting average would be higher, but where's the fun in that, you know? So I still like to take chances because that's the creative beauty of it, right? Is finding where, where's the line? What can I do with this? That's different. Is that too offensive or is that just offensive? <laughs> enough that I can get away with it. And those are all questions that you might have a feeling about it, but you don't really know for sure until you hit send. And the thing that I do that I will say compared to stand-up comedy and stand-up is something that I would like to eventually do, I think, especially as a veteran of 20 years of giving lectures and, and trying to entertain students. I, I think I've got some chops for a novice, but I, I will say I don't get to go into some little room with 20 people in it and test my jokes out. I'm, I'm firing live rounds every day, right? When I hit send, that's going out to 673,000 people or, or whatever it is now. And if it misses, it's going to miss with all those people, many of whom are big names and, and people that I admire and that I don't want to look stupid in front of. And so there's a certain amount of you just you kind of have to have brass balls to do it. I don't think about it in, in that way unless I'm describing it here in, in an interview. But it, you because you can't think about it, because if I spent time thinking about the potential ramifications of every tweet that I sent out, I don't think it would be good for me. So you kind of have to go from the hip as much as you can. And you don't really have a choice. There's no focus groups for Twitter. 
Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about that. It sounds like you're about to make a pivot and, you know, it sounds like you're refining a process. And, and again, um, you're firing bullets, you're doing it live. You know, a lot of comedians, like you said, they workshop their stuff. They work on these ideas. They put them together as a set. They'll just go pop into, um, you know, the comedy store or whatever, and they'll do a set and they see what works. Then they go back to it and they're not doing their Netflix special until they have that 55 minutes down. Right. So I think about this and what you're, trying to do or what you're about to do is like during COVID, there was some success. Remember like that Sarah Cooper, she was like, she used the medium as well as anybody could. And she was so funny, but the moment, and again, I'm not trying to discourage you from anything. The moment that she stepped off of social media and tried to do what she did so well on that medium in the real world, I haven't heard from her since. Has anyone checked on her? You know what I mean? So I guess my point is, is that it sounds like you got, you're always going to keep a foot in the door with this Twitter feed. This is your bread and butter, but you're going to try a bunch of new stuff. Yeah, absolutely. The, 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 the Twitter is the backbone. I'm, I'm not stupid enough to say, okay, well, I've, I've, I've gone beyond Twitter now. What else is there? The, the Twitter is going to continue. The, there's always going to be that presence there. I, and, and, I, and, I, and I would be stupid uh, not to, right? Because really, is, is, it's kind of sad this is in a way. It's probably the thing that I do better than anything else. What, everybody has something that they do better than they do anything else. All of us. For some people, it's fixing a car engine. For some people, it's maybe it's operating on somebody, right? For whatever that, for some people, it might be playing video games. But everybody's got something that they're better at than their other stuff even if they're mediocre at that and they, they suck at everything else. Twitter is, I, I, I think that it's the thing that I'm best at. And yes, I think I have a talent. People ask me, you guys ask me, where does it come from? I don't really know. It's kind of like songwriting. Sometimes, you know, Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan, whatever, the people that I look up to who, who can write great songs. And you think to yourself, like, where, where does Visions of Johanna come from? Where did Desolation Row come from? How did Paul McCartney write the Hey Jude? Where, where does it come from? And the answer is, is it's just something that they have that they probably can't even really answer themselves. Because if they knew, if Bob Dylan knew how to write Desolation Row every day of the week, he would have written a thousand songs like that right and so it the creative muse is a is a fickle thing and and i don't really know where it comes from so i've, I've got a natural talent but the thing that i'm most proud of is the fact that i have just worked relentlessly at it every day i'm just sharpening that that skill because i haven't missed a day of tweeting in eight it'll be january the first of next year will be eight years since I've missed a day of tweeting. And in those eight years, I would say you can count on one hand the number of times that I've tweeted less than 12 or 15 times. So just through sheer repetition, just grinding over and over again, it's probably not that much different than Tiger Woods or somebody just hitting a million golf balls until you've grooved it uh, as good as it's gonna get. And so that, that for me is the thing. There's lots of people who are talented. There's lots of people who are funny, but I went from being absolutely someone that nobody knew 
no followers, zero, li very limited. I have gotten some media through the years now and television and newspaper and, and stuff like that. But I did, I certainly didn't in the beginning. And the thing that I'm proudest of is that I kept going because I found a tweet the other day, guys, I was searching through the, through the archives and I found a tweet from 2014. This is even before I began my streak of never missing a day. And it still had zero retweets and zero likes. And I thought about putting it out there and saying, Hey guys, look at this. And then I kind of felt like, no, I don't even want to do that. It means more to me to know that that tweet is out there in the wilderness never retweeted and never liked. And it was a reminder for me, uh, you know, of where I started. And I, I basically just tweeted my way to this point by just continuing to do it over and over and over again. And I think that I improved my skills that way too. So it's clear that you have passion and you're attracted to either sports figures that showed passion at the time or whatever. I'm curious though, to steal a question, the guy was probably going to ask your favorite seventies sports movie you know, in terms of what encapsulated to you everything about it. Because I think back, like, Heaven Can Wait, Rocky, North Dallas 40. Give me your one. If you, I've never heard you talk about it. Give me one that you think kind of encapsulates the 70s. The Bad News Bears. Yep. For me. Yeah. Yeah. Maker. I love the Rocky movies, especially, obviously, the first one, second one, Mr. T and Drago. It got bigger and dumber and, and goofier as it went on. But I, I love the Rocky franchise. But for me, the two 70s sports movies, one would be the Bad News Bears. And then I, I got to mention uh, Slapshot as well. And those are both movies. And the reason that I would say those movies is, is neither one of those movies could probably be made today at least not in the same way. If you go back and watch those movies, there's not a studio in Hollywood that would have put the original Bad News Bears out to the public in that form, right? And, and years later, they did do one with Billy Bob Thornton and it it, it, it went over like a lead balloon. Because, yeah, it didn't have, it didn't have the, the life force to it, the energy, the thing that separates kind of is you were saying earlier, guy, it didn't have that authenticity, the originality to it. And when you try to make bad news bears, you're not, you're going to make, you're going to make something else, right? That movie is what it is because it was organic. It was of its time and it was, it was, it was authentic as what it was. And so for me, that one probably embodies the seventies, the best of any sports movie. Jackie Earl Haley. I don't think he did anything after that. And I got to, you know, that scene when they're in the, when she's doing her ballet lessons and, and Kelly leaks in there, I play for the bears. I'm hitting 591. I drive a Harley for some fucking reason. Yeah. I can watch that a hundred times and I'll laugh every freaking time. It's genius. Listen, Rick, before we get out of here, I mean, what one tweet uh, has gotten more play? I mean, they're all, Listen, and I mean this sincerely, every single one of them is brilliant, but which one really is just for whatever reason, for whatever reason is just sort of hit a place with people and rendered, um, it's, it's just really made its mark. Well, the tweet that I suppose elevated the account the most, and I started to see a jump in followers and a jump in interest in Super 70s was a tweet that I tweeted about five years ago on my 46th birthday. 
as it as it were. And it's Howard Cosell flanked on either side by OJ Simpson and Bruce Jenner, then Bruce <laughs> Jenner. And uh, I found that tweet uh, that I found that photo, I should say. And I held it for a while. Some photos, people will send me photos. If I'm hungry for material, somebody sends me a photo, I'll open the email or I'll open the DM on Twitter and I'll be like, Ooh, I can use this and I need something. And I'll come up with a caption quick and I'll just tweet it. But with that one, I knew I had something. So I held it. I didn't know what the caption was, but I didn't want to mess that caption up because I knew that it was, it was a splendid picture. And so a few weeks later, I tweeted it out, as I said, on my birthday. And the caption was, ladies and gentlemen, I've looked into the future and you're not going to believe this shit. <laughs> so that one took off. It ended up getting like 50,000 plus retweets and something like 115,000 likes or something like that. And it, 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 it got memed. It went around the world a couple of times. I, I would hear things. Somebody told me once, they said, hey, uh, Howard Stern was talking about your, your tweet today on his show or whatever. And I'm like, oh, wow, really? It's like, did he mention my name? No, <laughs> but he was talking about the tweet. It was out there. And so that was the first one that made me kind of step back and say like, wow, like if you tweet the right thing, people will notice it, it will get shared and you will gain followers. And so that one, I think as much as anything made me think, okay, Cobb, put your head down and keep working. And you might, maybe, just maybe, you might be able to do something with this. Well, to, to quote the stranger here, Ricky, it's good to know that you're out there, man, because you know, you're taking it easy for all of us sinners. Um, listen, it's been our sincere pleasure. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the tape. And, and you know, we are going to do a little promo for your Super 70 Sports store where you have all those brilliant T-shirts. The first 50 people who leave a review in the Apple podcast store, you know what to do with that review. You screenshot it, you send it to Amanda, and we're going to send you a shirt. We may expand that because we're going to do, we got to design a shirt to be in that store, don't we, Danny and guys? So that's coming to a Super 70 Sports store near your, uh, near you. So uh, thanks, Ricky, for being on with us. We really appreciate it. Hey, thank you guys so much. It's been a great conversation. My pleasure. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.